Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're going to wax philosophical here on economics and some of the mysteries that are out there before uh, this jobs report. Alan Kruger has given us exceptional value over the years. He is the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He is an eclectic author writing brilliantly on the game theory of terror. And, of course, his iconic work with Mr. Card on uh, the minimum wage. So give us an update on the minimum wage now. What evidence have you learned from $15 an hour? Well, I would would say, Tom, the most striking (laughs) evidence comes from the U.K. $15 an hour has only been enacted in a handful of cities in the U.S. so far in a couple of states. But uh, the U.K. uh, went from having no national minimum wage uh, to having a pretty sizable national minimum wage. Uh, They appointed a commission, which every year does a careful job uh, analyzing the effects of the minimum wage and has found uh, that the minimum wage in the U.K. has uh, not had an adverse effect on employment of low-wage workers. In fact, employment growth for low-wage workers (laughs) has been considerably stronger in the U.K. than it has been in the U.S., uh, and it's helped to reduce inequality. So I think it reinforces the iconic uh, result that David Card and I found that the labor market doesn't correspond to the textbook description. It's much more complicated. And moderate minimum wages can have beneficial effects uh, for low-wage workers and the economy overall. I've got a new chart of the year candidate in August. You know, I don't know what it's going to be. I took GDP and I took out consumption. And it's absolutely original what's happened in the last number of years, including your tour of duty at the White House if you have Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX and you take the C out, it's pretty moldy on a four-year moving average, and it's rolling over again. I go back to what I talked to Dr. Rogoff about, Dr. Poole from Brown about. Let's talk to Dr. Kruger about it. Can you do a government policy to stimulate investment? LBJ would have said, yes, do it. We can't. Well, we tried a little bit. You know, we had an investment tax credit as part of the Recovery Act. Did it work? Uh, I think it helped. And I'll tell you something else. If you make the same graph and take out G, growth looks a lot stronger. So uh, it's it's uh, not only <coughs> business investment, which has been weak, especially lately. But it's lately. G. It's the austerity of G. The austerity. A lot of it's state and local. When you fold in what Mr. Kearney's dealing with with England – can there be a new, more beneficial, more constructive austerity wrapped around that old American philosophy of we need to be austere? Or do we just need to jettison the concept of austerity? No, I think we uh, need to be austere in good times and less austere uh, when the economy is weak. And one of the problems we had was uh, we just partied too much before the Great Recession uh, had tax cuts when they didn't seem to boost the economy and worsened our inequality problem. And a whole range of programs, for example, just look at the funding for unemployment insurance, which uh, traditionally we raise more revenue in, in uh, good times and we use that 
mm-hmm. spend down the fund in bad times. That's why it's a countercyclical policy. A number of governors cut the unemployment insurance tax fund during the boom years, <clears throat> and their funds are struggling as a result. Well, and you see that in the Kansas vote this week where the arch conservatives who really took a hard line were basically tossed out of office. Not just one guy, but a set of guys. It does show that sometimes <clears throat> democracy works. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm not going to give an opinion. I'll let you give the opinion. I'm just going to make the observation they got tossed out. There's no question about that. Um, I got a host of things to talk to you about. I want to go right now to what to me has occurred since Wednesday, which is given interesting economics, the great unknowable in the future is always inflation and that Governor Carney has a set of goals clearly to stimulate growth. And within the moving parts of the British economy, where inflation will be in 12 months is just total mystery. Fitch was on yesterday, a stunning 3.1% statistic with arch currency depreciation. HSBC has a four handle on UK inflation. That that just takes all the apples off the apple cart, doesn't it? Well... Uh, frankly, those would be problems which I think Mr. Carney wouldn't mind having compared to what the Netherlands is going through now with deflation uh, and much of Europe. Um, I think the problems are now asymmetric, and central banks have been able to handle the problem of inflation in the past. Uh, deflation puts them in new territory. Right, like the Netherlands and others. Like the mm-hmm. Netherlands right now, uh, or Japan. And I think the situation in the U.K. is very different than it would be for the the U.S. because we're much more of a closed economy, right. so exchange rate movements affect our inflation rate much less. And on top of that, most invoices are done in dollars, so we're much more insulated by the effect, much more insulated from the effect of exchange rate swings on inflation in the U.S. But within that, and if if there's a presumed appreciation of pound sterling, does that by definition lead to? dollar strength, and I think of William Klein's classic work at the Peterson Institute, or is that depreciation diffused out across many currency pairs? Well, it does diffuse out, but the dollar will strengthen as a result and has been strengthening, certainly against the pound. So how do you advise a president in the Oval Office on dollar strength? He's going to go, what we need is a strong dollar policy. Sasha, get over to Nancy's and Martha's Vineyard and get to work. I mean, his daughter's working. She's arduous job. Can you imagine, John Tucker, the daughter of the president working at Nancy's and Martha's Vineyard, the line out the door? (laughs) I just, I can't concentrate. I just want my kids to get jobs. I don't care (laughs) about the president's kids. (laughs) But but seriously, in the Oval Office, how do you advise on dollar policy? Yeah, I'll tell you something amazing, Tom. In the time I worked uh, for the president, the the Treasury and and CEA, (laughs) nobody asked me about inflation. Inflation was so quiet. Uh, I'm sure it was quite different in that uh, position in the 1970s. Um, but it also, I think, is an indication that uh, the U.S. is immune from a lot of the problems uh, uh, in the rest of the world. Now, that's not true of manufacturing. And right. I think the struggles that we're seeing in manufacturing and to some extent uh, mining and commodities is a result of a stronger right. dollar. Alan Kruger with us on Jobs Day to get us going. We're taking a broader view here than just the moment of the labor economy. We'll do that with Jim Glassman. On to Bill Gross, Abby Joseph Cohen as well later. But right now, Professor Kruger of Princeton University, you have been way out front on saying, okay, you take everybody and you sum them into the American economy. And yet we all know that John Edwards was on to something 
and that there are two or three or even four Americas. When you look at productivity, capital, we all know that story, labor dynamics, and this strange thing of technological progress and total factor productivity, are all the gains going to a small part of America? That certainly has been the case over the last 35 years that uh, the top 1% has gotten the lion's share of our economic growth, and you could attribute a lot of that to the productivity growth. Yeah, but to be more elegant about it, the top 10% has gotten a huge, or the 15%. You know, the 1% thing, it's a political thing, I get that. But the massive hunk of this has gone to the top 15%, including the three people in the studio. No matter how you cut the data, it looks fractile. You know, it looks like inequality has been growing in virtually all segments of the workforce. Um, So the top 1% has done a lot better than the top 15%, but the top 15% has done a lot better than the bottom 85%. Yeah. Within that fractile nature, can good economists of all political persuasions affect a policy to benefit the 85% without diminishing good value to the 15%? I think there's a, there are a number of things that could be done. Uh, tax policy, individual and corporate tax policy, I think, could bring about a more fair and uh, stronger economy. Investing in infrastructure, improving our education system, providing greater access to higher education. I think all of those things could help. And some things have helped. The Affordable Care Act, for example, has mm-hmm. uh, helped to bring 20 million more people then uh, why is everybody listening nationwide is going, okay, right, Dr. Kruger, I get all that, but Aetna's walking away from the Affordable Care Act. Come on. three. I believe it's three major insurers have just said this. You know, they've said it with all great grace and good feeling. This is not working. I mean, just as one example. Look, we've heard lots of complaints throughout the, the last few years that it's not working. But what we've seen is slower growth in health care costs and more people getting coverage. So uh, there are certainly lots of uh, problems to fix, but I think Americans should be proud uh, that we have expanded coverage to a lot of people who are having difficulty getting health insurance, either because of previous conditions or because they couldn't afford it. Full disclosure, folks, we like to be open and transparent at Bloomberg Surveillance. Two mentionable offspring have benefited from the Affordable Care Act by extending health coverage. What, What is it, John Tucker? The president picks up health care for spoiled brats out to age 35, or is it 40? Just as long as we don't have to. <laughs> oh, well, yes, we do actually have to. Oh. <laughs> but there it is, John Tucker <laughs> speaking. But, but seriously, John Tucker speaking for America, not in my backyard. Do I want to pay for health care? I mean, that's the reality. Well, I think many of the components, like you just mentioned, the fact that Coverage is now extended on parents' plans to 20, mm-hmm. up to age 26. I've benefited from that, although I have one about to roll off. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's something that many Americans do appreciate. Yeah. Tell us about Jobs Day today. Where are ri- rising wages? Service sector inflation, 3.2%. If you look at just the service sector, I've got wage deflation, don't I? Well, I think wages are starting to edge up. Um, not as strong as we'd like to see, but in part because price inflation is so low, uh, wage inflation has been weak. But I think we're seeing uh, wage growth up to the 25 2.6%, and I'd like to see it get above 3% by the end of the year. Within this is the unemployment rate. Let me go back to the arch question, 4.8, 4.9. Dean Mackey, 0.72, has a, a, a vision of a 4.0% unemployment rate. 
to the great body of Americans uh, uh, represented by Mr. Trump and Senator Sanders. Why are we so miserable if the unemployment rate is so good? Well, we've gone through a very difficult time. The, <clears throat> Some Americans haven't. Well, I think I take that back, Tom. I think the Great Recession caused harm throughout the distribution. Uh, Eight million Americans lost their job. Home prices fell by as much as 30 percent. Uh, the stock market uh, fell, but has since come back. Um, so I think we've gone through a very difficult economic time. And on top of that, the vast majority of Americans, as, as you noted earlier, uh, didn't see much of the gains over the last 30 years. So I think there's a lot of frustration that's built up. Uh, but I think people also recognize that the economy has made big uh, uh, big steps uh, to overcome the problems that were created by the Great Recession. And the unemployment rate below 5% is an indication of that. Alan Kruger, thank you so much, folks. He's the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic uh, uh, Advisors. There is never a bad time, a double negative, to speak with Abby Joseph Cohen. It is particularly a good time to speak to Abby Joseph Cohen when the gloom crew is out in force. Abby Joseph Cohen, CFA, with the Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute, their senior investment strategist. Abby, have you ever seen the go to the go to cash crowd so shrill? Um, they are certainly very, very enthusiastic about going to cash, despite the very low or, in some cases, non-existent returns. And so one of the things we all need to keep in mind is that there are trading positions, but then there should also be the view that's intermediate and longer-term in nature. And from that standpoint, it doesn't seem to me that cash is really a particularly good place to be at all. And as you and I have discussed in the past, Tom, I'm also increasingly concerned about bonds. Um, many people have moved into bonds to try to pick up a little bit of yield. I understand the relative move. Uh, within certain fixed income markets. But if we take the point of view that this is an economy, in the U.S. at least, that is going to continue to grow, um, I would much rather be exposed to things that benefit when the economy right. grows. And that obviously is equities and in some cases commodities if the supply demand is in yeah. balance. In perpetuity is the length of Mr. Ovechkin's contract with the Washington Capitals. <laughs> the idea of in per perpetuity, can you bring that over to dividend growth, is dividend growth something that just goes on and on and on? Fascinating question now, because it's not just dividend growth. It's also a question of distinguishing those equities or those financial securities that offer yield versus the growth um, in dividends, the underlying income. And I think that we have to keep in mind, number one, uh, that we now have equities writ large offering higher yield than most fixed income securities. This hasn't happened in a few decades. And in the past, um, it's typically been an opportunity to own uh, stocks rather than fixed income. Number two, using dividend growth to distinguish equities from one another uh, is, in fact, something that works quite well, but not in a vacuum. So, for example, we all know that high-yielding equities are often not a good place to mm -hmm. be because they have high yield because the company doesn't really have anything else to do with their cash. So we look for companies where there is growth in dividends 
because it means there's good cash flow, but we also look for companies with good returns on equity. It's really that combination yeah. over a period of time that tends to give you the best-performing companies and also the best-performing stocks. How will earnings do? There's also an earnings gloom, which is different than cash flow gloom, which is different than corporations' abilities to manage the moment. You're not gloomy on earnings, are you? There is a wide variation, Tom, between sector. Um, and we could talk about that. But by and large, we see that earnings are continuing to improve. And I'll make an analogy to a comment that Alan Kruger, who, by the way, is my guru on labor markets, made. And that is after you've already had big improvements, be it in the labor market or earnings, of course the growth rate is going to slow. What we need to look at, though, is the durability of it. And we see that earnings can continue to grow for an extended period of time. There will, of course, be volatility. So, for example, aggregate earnings has been held back uh, by what's been going on right. in the commodity sector. <clears throat> um, if that just becomes a neutral, um, we begin to see, again, interestingly, a high single-digit and double-digit oh. S&P earnings growth. It is Jobs Day with a lot going on. Yields lower. We saw that off the Kearney press conference yesterday. Abby Joseph Cohen with us uh, with Goldman Sachs and, of course, the Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute. Abby, I still want to ask questions on equity, but there's so much going on in the world. Um, What original policy from Governor Kearney yesterday to provide monetary stimulus going back 322 years to a low-rate regime? Basically, that means we've never seen this before. And yet, will it actually make fiscal authorities join the party? Um, We'll have to wait and see um, what others do. But clearly, the message from Mr. Carney and a number of other central bankers is that monetary policy cannot do it alone. We have really seen an absence of fiscal policy, uh, not just in the U.K., but I would argue um, fiscal policy in the United States the last handful of years has also not been uh, as active, perhaps, as it could be, particularly in a low interest rate environment where governments could be using very low-cost money uh, to rebuild infrastructure uh, and engage in a number of, of, of other programs. You know, there's an interesting similarity, uh, Tom, between the people in the U.K. who voted for Brexit and the people in the United States who are not fully participating in the current recovery. You know, we always focus on that unemployment rate of 4.8, 4.9. What we have to recognize is that there is a group of American workers who have good skills, but perhaps not high education skills, whose jobs are fairly routine. And many of these people have lost their jobs, not to trade so much, but really to technology. If you look at manufacturing, about 80% of the job losses have been due to technology, the increased productivity of the existing workers, only about 20% to trade. And if you look at Brexit, what you see is that the Areas in the U.K. that voted to leave the European Union tend to have workers in pretty much that same category. Uh, So they have not been participating in the incredible job growth of the so-called information economy. Um, And what I think fiscal policy has to address, because monetary policy can't. Monetary policy doesn't have the tools to reach into uh, various communities to enhance education, to enhance infrastructure and some of the other things that we know have been effective uh, in previous periods. 
I, I mean, I look at this, and the basic idea is what can policymakers do? Do you see any evidence that po- monetary, fiscal, political policymakers can establish policy for a bimodal system? One of the problems, Tom, has been that their hands have been tied, particularly in the EU, where uh, because of the so-called Maastricht Accord, there have been limitations on the use of fiscal Mm -hmm. policy. And then, of course, in the United States, we have had politically imposed um, obstacles uh, to using fiscal policy. And I would basically say what many economists, both Democrat and Republican, have been saying, in an environment of extraordinarily low interest rates, why not? Why not um, borrow the money now uh, and use it for long-term projects? There has really been a paucity of government spending um, in a number of categories. Uh, basically, those long-term investments that we used to make. Right. Now, you know, you go back to the Eisenhower administration and, of course, the interstate highway system. Um, you know, so what is the uh, 21st century equivalent of it? Many people talking about increases in broadband and, and, and so on. Also, increases in access access to higher education at an affordable uh, level for many people. But let's not also forget that much of the infrastructure that was built in the United States in the 50s and 60s is in desperate need of yeah, being that, updated. Yeah, I, I get all the new projects and the happy talk of it, but I agree with you, Abby, that, you know, you know, I mean, for the elite, it's sitting on airplane runways. And for a huge body of America, it's just subways and moving uh, cars and such around. Oh, it's ahead. also a question, Tom, of who's going to be doing that infrastructure construction, and a lot of it is the same people who have really been left out of the improvement in the labor <clears> markets. Well, just because of time, I, I want to move on. What do you learn from Goldman Sachs and Jeff Curry and all those people about oil, and then fold that into your macro belief? Oil, everyone suggests stability at $40 a barrel, and yet there's a few people saying, yeah, but on oil. Can oil find stability here? Um, the, the sense of our commodities team is that um, oil looks like it should be stabilizing at about these levels. Once again, the caution about yeah. the difference between a trading view and an intermediate view. Uh, and the focus, of course, should be not just um energy, but but other commodities. We also have to recognize that the overhang in oil inventory uh, has been one of the things that has dragged down the reported GDP numbers. Now, for 13 of the last 14 months, inventories in the United States have declined. Um, Some of that is related to an excess of aircraft and autos and so on, but there's also a big chunk that's related to petroleum. When we get to equilibrium in these various Mm -hmm. industries and sectors, We'll probably see GDP um, be reported out at the underlying rate of something like two to two and a half percent. Okay, finally, and and I want to dive into this with you because you've done some very good work on this. You know what a fan distribution is, which is the guesstimates of whatever you're talking about. In this case, it's inflation. I am thunderstruck by the wide set of opinions of where United Kingdom inflation is going. Abby, do you see any predictable ability to guess inflation given all the other moving parts, whether it's the United Kingdom or the United States? Do we really have confidence? Um, 
investors do not have confidence, and quite frankly, economists don't either. And, you know, in my um, way of thinking about things, underlying inflation is driven uh, by a number of factors, but the most important by weight is labor cost. Um, and in the United States, we are seeing that wages are now rising. Uh, let's call it 3% or so. Yeah. Uh, this is in, in excess of the reported level of inflation. And I think that the core inflation is going to start to move up as well. This has been such a peculiar period, Tom, because of what's gone on with commodity prices and also with the prices of some manufactured goods that have come down because of uh, technology and so on. Uh, but if we take a look at what's happening in <clears throat> labor markets per se, that to me is probably one of yeah. the better measures of intermediate to long-term inflation. So critically here, if service sector, core service sector inflation is 3.2%, and I'm not suggesting goods inflation will catch up with that, but do do real wages decline or as inflation rises, do wages rise with it? Real wages are, of course, the key to how people feel. And what we have seen has been this differentiation within even our own labor market. We have seen real wages rise for people in two categories. Category number one, the well-educated people who can uh, contribute to abstract thinking, whether it's in service or advanced manufacturing. We have also seen job creation and some wage increase um, for people who are doing non-routine work that requires a lower skill, where we've not seen real wages go up, and we've seen in some categories real wages go down, is that category of people who have some skills, but what they do is routine, and that has made them vulnerable uh, to Mm -hmm. being mechanized. Uh, as it used to be uh, described, uh, also some loss, yeah. not total, some loss uh, due to trade. Right. And, and so what we have to be careful is to back away from those aggregate data on the labor markets and really look down uh, into individual sectors, individual industries, uh, and see which of those categories are creating jobs and are creating gains yeah. in real wages and prepare more of our right. people to participate in those sectors. Abby, 12 months out or year in 17? your S&P and Dow call, please. Um, On the S&P, I think a number on the order of 2,300 uh, is likely. That's basically saying, you know, I think that S&P earnings go up and not much change in the P.E. ratio. Up 136 S&P points. We'll do the Mm -hmm. math on that in a bit. Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much with Goldman Sachs. Greatly appreciate it. Glassman with us with J.P. Morgan. Um, I am sobered, seriously. We make jokes about it, but it's not funny. Rarely do I hear Jim Glassman say he's befuddled. Why are we befuddled after the two-month whipsaw that we saw? Yeah, you know, the, we, we know that data are volatile, but I think people are still scratching their heads about what happened in, to payrolls in May. I think the bigger befuddlement, frankly, is the following. What if you went to sleep 10 years ago and you just woke up now? And we asked you to describe the state of the U.S. economy. Well, you would look at our GDP growth and you'd say, gee, that's pretty grim. And you'd see the GDP growth had slowed down this year from 2% growth to 1%. And you would, and you would conclude that the U.S. economy must be performing, must be subpar performance, growing slower than its long-run potential. But then you would look at the labor market data 
And you would say, gee, this looks pretty normal, and it looks like an economy that's growing above trend. Uh, unemployment pretty steady, slowing a little bit. Unemployment rate coming down. All the measures of hidden unemployment gradually coming down. And jobless claims at all-time lows. And you would say, gee, the labor market is telling you that the economy is growing faster than its underlying trend. Who's got the right story? Well, obviously, it's the labor market because that labor market is the real thing. That's what we care about. That yeah. tells us we well, care so. about growth because we're trying to figure out what gets us, what gets the labor market back on its feet. And the labor right. market is getting back on its feet. Let me start with the emotion. How do you respond to the pervasive statement that the jobs that are being created are not good jobs? Well, I think that's a separate issue, and that's tied to this whole thing that's been going on for a couple of decades. Lots of innovation, disrupting a lot of jobs. I, I go to factories of my our clients. It's amazing what you see. There's a lot of there's a lot of automation in there. A lot of robots running around. Okay, I'll go with that. That's the problem. And and I think what <clears> happened <throat> is we went through this terrible recession, and people thought it was the recession that was going to fix the problem when we got back on our feet. But really, something bigger and sweeping going on. That's uh, a bigger challenge, but I, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful about this because I look at what's going on in, with our business clients. Everybody's working very hard to get job skills training going to help people get this skill. They, they know they they complain that they can't find people with the right skills, but the business community is working on this, and I think over time we're going to find that all this innovation that's going okay. on, which is creating opportunities. I'll get that. I'll just state that that. The day to day, what I observe is a wide body of people who have interest in parts of the economy where there's no jobs growth, and yeah. there's a whole other group where they're desperate for skilled people. Desperate, yeah, yeah. desperate. And that's that's actually that's music to our ears as, as economists because that tells you that there is a need for people, and it just but you can't become an engineer overnight. We just woke up one day and we we everybody thought manufacturing doesn't happen in the U.S. And so they weren't really, they weren't not, we're not really prepared for the new need. I want to oh, touch on some of the demographics that you're so expert at. Let's start with one of your great research points. Are the kids getting jobs or are they still going back to school? Slowly. Oh, tu oh tuition yeah. one. Yeah, that's what's really interesting here. There's about 2 million kids, young people, 20 to 45 years of age. If you're 45, you're young. You're um, killing me. You're 2 million people are uh, still have have left. I think that whole generation has realized that more education is going is necessary. Maybe parents can help, but slowly as the job market gets better, we're starting to see about 10% of that problem has been getting fixed. So I think that's one of the interesting things about the job report is to see what's going on with the participation rate of people in their in their prime working years. And that's slowly beginning to come okay. back, but, but much more slowly than I expected. No, there, I, I'm not going to say that you came up with this phrase. I certainly did. Maybe John Tucker did. The man session. It was a man session. Have the men come back? Uh, the women have done maybe better because of that manufacturing issue. That, that really, it's the manufacturing sector that's really been uh, shedding jobs. And that was more male-dominated <clears throat> in the old days. Less yeah. so now, but it's really the men that have probably well, been uh, lagging. And that's what you're hearing yeah, on but the political I did the chart. I did the chart this week of manufacturing as compared to the population. And as you know, Jim, it's a gradual decline, yep. and the bottom comes out about 12 years ago. Yep, absolutely. Plummets on a log basis. Absolutely. Plummets straight down. That happened because of technology? A lot of it was, and I think maybe the recession just forced <clears throat> the issue faster. I think a lot of folks in a desperate need to survive 
just they had all this technology available to them, and I think it really sort of it, okay. it, bad times tend to force you to do things. <clears throat> McKinsey's out with their terrific study this week on inequality in America, and one of the themes they have is the atomization of the labor economy, as compared to Sweden with high unions. Can unions help solve our our inequality and our separation of society? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, this this was an important dynamic in the early 20th century. But the thing is, the world has become much more competitive. The innovation is so rampant. It's just, I think, if that were the case, I think unions would regroup, and I think people would find right. that they would, you know, that they maybe could do something. Yeah. But, but I, think, I think that's limited. John Tucker, help me here. For Jim Glassman, he's so young. The early 20th century is the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Right. Explain to him Walter Meany, among others. It was, all, it, was a, it was a time earlier than that where the unions were uh, really predominant, Dr. Glassman. Yeah. What do you think you will see today? Let's, let's look forward here and then on to our next section. What do I, we see today? I, I think we'll see... Back to the trend that 150 to 200,000 probably. I mean, things have slowed. Do we little. see revisions? Uh, we're not due for big revisions. I mean, May was very weak. June popped back. The average certainly makes sense. So I'd be surprised if we see much revision. And I really think we've seen enough about the labor market. Jobless claims holding very steady low. The ADP survey is a useful piece of information about the job market. It's telling you the trend isn't changing much. So I think what we're learning is when you see an outlier, you probably should fade it because everything about the U.S. labor market looks pretty steady, gradually slowing as we work our way towards full employment. And I'm more interested, frankly, in the hidden unemployment problem, What the what's going on with the involuntary part-timers, that's come down really dramatically. The people who are unemployed for more than six months come down way fast. That's almost back to normal. We're we're less than a million away from so normal. So we are not part-time America? We're rapidly getting back to full-time. For yeah, Which a lot, is a lot what of the folks do work. Shows. A lot of folks do work part time voluntarily. Yeah. But what the problem has been, a lot of people who were forced to work on shortened work schedules. Janet Yellen was very focused on that issue. That's coming down very rapidly. It's uh, under a hundred million. It's it's really, I mean, a million. Well, we're really getting there quickly. My dumb question of the day: If I have two or three part time jobs, am I considered full time by guys like you? No, not if you want a full time job. If you if you have several part time jobs and you're happy with that then you'll be considered voluntarily part-time. But if you really want one full-time job, you would be considered underemployed. But you really aren't because mm -hmm. if you've got several jobs, part-time jobs, you're kind of fully employed, but you're not happy until you have the full-time job if that's what you want. Edward emails in and says we need to resuscitate. Right? Come on, Edward. It's too fancy of a word. <laughs> resuscitate. Got it. Vocational ed. That really worked yeah. for a while. Yeah. Can it work now in a service sector economy? Uh, well, there are a lot of the needs are in the manufacturing sector. So we are reviving that that concept. And I hear a lot when I'm on the road, a lot of job skills programs, community college programs, community colleges are generating a lot of these. So, yeah, I think that's an important that's an important effort. Jobs Day, Bill Gross coming up, Jim Glassman with us. Now, we love having the A-team here. Usually Glassman's off on like some three-week vacation about now and we miss him. But this year he's with us, which is fabulous. Uh, Jim, I believe this Jobs Day comes within a presidential derby. Hmm. Have you heard a job-forming policy from either candidate? You've heard a lot of talk about 
doing things to help workers. But I think you know, it's really more focused on the pay issue. Uh, the folks who aren't doing as well as they were in the previous in their previous jobs. So, I think everybody recognizes the labor, the U.S. labor market is getting back on its feet, and we're doing it. In the U.S. economy done a pretty good job recovering from the awful recession nine years ago. So, uh, the the issues really are more about these structural issues, and a lot of folks yeah. are not doing are not doing as well. A lot of folks are sort of been miss, missing out because of all these all this innovation that's been going on. Help us. With and, and I give great credit to your colleague Michael Faroli, the the responsible measurement of what potential GDP, of what a good run rate is for the economy, take Faroli's work and bring it over to what non-farm payrolls should be. The answer is a lower number. Yeah, I mean the only way to reconcile <clears throat> slow GDP but a job market that is still growing faster than its underlying labor force is we must be growing above our potential. And for that to be true, potential growth has to have been much lower. Now, the, now there is an issue. It's, it's conceivable that GDP is not being measured properly. But, but the truth is, if you had to take these numbers at face value, it implies that our potential growth rate has come down. And labor productivity is a big part of that. Part of it is also the demographics. The, the working age population is growing more slowly. That means you don't have to grow as rapidly to achieve full employment as you might have thought. Yeah, but, but Mike, help me here. You guys can come up with a number that's appropriate, but on the lawn of the White House, when Dr. Furman steps out there, yeah, they, that's not a tough sell. acceptable. It's a tough sell. It's 16, it, whether it's President Clinton or President Trump. Yeah, it's a tough sell. And part of the problem here is uh, it is the reality, but part of the problem is we do have a lot of promises the public sector has made from Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And so if our economy, whatever the reason, is growing more slowly, it makes it very makes it much harder for the government to pay for the promises that we've made. Japan is struggling big time with this. So it's important. It, it is the new reality, and it's certainly not getting in the way of getting our economy back to full employment. But the truth is, given all the legacy promises we've made to folks, we need to figure out how to get the economy moving faster. Is there an economy off the books in America? In Probably. Europe, there's a wide understanding. I'm going to call it a, a black market or shadow yeah. economy. Do we have one? I, we do have one. Um, it's always been um, uh, it, it's always been around. The question is: Is it growing as a share of the economy? Probably not. Uh, although a lot of the things like Airbnbs and Ubers and things like that does make it easier for you to be under the table, but. My guess is it's probably not growing as rapidly as it, it does in, in um, Europe. Let's go back to wages and hours worked. Uh, I, oh, good morning to Tom Purcelli of uh, RBC Capital, who's, like you, done a lot of uh, work on this. I guess wages are rising. A little There's faster. measurements of inflation. Alan Kruger just made a big deal. Wages are, you know, they're, in, they're moving okay. in the right direction. Yeah. But I got to work a number of hours, too. Yeah. Is the, is the number of hours worked per week an archaic Statistic? No, it's uh, an important part. It's the sort of in the background. It's sort of if we if we work longer hours, that means there's more activity going on. So you can get more GDP by just having people yeah, work longer hours. But I have a number of family members that would say that Dr. Glassman's got rocks in his head. There's nobody my kids know 
who's working a 38-hour, 39, 40-hour work week. Nobody. You know, you know I think the concept has uh, lost some meaning because yeah. with all the – when you take, take a snapshot of somebody who was working 20 years ago, there was a lot of dead time in your day. But today with all the social networks and things, the internet, the access to the internet, people are able to fill in dead time. So it's hard to know how much time of that 40-hour 40, that 40 week are you actually working – on the job and how much is, you know, filling in as you're waiting for something to happen. So I think, frankly, the concept is right. getting a little blurred. We are thrilled to have Jim Glassman with us at J.P. Morgan. Truly wonderful on the nuances in the deciles, the quintiles <laughs> of our labor economy. Love the talk with him away from the math on more of the human characteristics of our labor economy. We hope you enjoy it. Um, what I noticed right away, Jim Glassman, is a net revision was positive, 18,000. Added in, that's 273,000. And, a, you know, that, that's two back-to-back terrific months. Yeah, you know, they, well, you know what's so curious about all this is it's sort of been going on for a while. The job market is just as steady as can be. And we get, we get a few outliers now and then. How is this happening with GDP slowing from 2% last year to 1% this year? I think it's just a reminder, be cautious with all these numbers. We, we, uh, there are issues with a lot of them, and I think the key here is to keep an eye on the job market trends. Today's report backs up what we've been right. seeing from jobless claims and ADP and other trends. So it tells us we're making progress. The, quickly, the three months moving average is 190000 yeah. That's, that's not a bad economy. Not a bad economy. It's growing up faster than trend. We think the underlying trend, as long as you're growing, employment's growing faster than seventy five to 100,000, you're growing faster than the underlying trend. Now, the reason the unemployment rate didn't come down was because the labor force jumped again. So as, as, as the market gets better, people are going to be coming back well, and looking for jobs. Jim Glassman, as always, thank you so much. And now joining us, Bloomberg Television Worldwide and Bloomberg Radio Close. Good morning uh, is well with William Gross of Janice Capital. I've got Facebook Live going to uh, make it more attractive for Mr. Gross. And Jim Glassman with us as well with J.P. Morgan. Uh, Bill Gross, is this enough of a jobs report on first blush to make Chair Yellen really, really, really reassess Policy, three months moving average, 190,000 on non-farm payrolls. That's good job growth. Um, you know, I, I would point out that the household survey, which is the, uh, the, the twin to this report, was rather strong too, although for the prior three months it had been negative. So, yeah, the, this month uh, shows some good gains in wages, some good gains in jobs. Is it enough for Janet Yellen uh, in September? I don't think so. I, I think she's still focused on global conditions. She's still uh, worried about a strong dollar relative to uh, emerging markets and other developed economies. And so, um, you know, perhaps one to come, but maybe in December if this continues, but not for now. If she begins a one-step move, have you done the econometric guess, guesswork of how much the dollar would advance? 
No, not really. Um, you know, the dollar would be uh, stronger than it would be otherwise, uh, I would think. But, um, you, you know, the dollar's been in an uptrend for the past three or four months, and yeah. I think that's uh, something that, that bothers uh, the Fed if it continues. And so um, we're, we're going to have to play the globalization game as opposed to the domestic game going forward. I mean, it, I think what all of our viewers and listeners would agree, Bill Gross, we're in this great distortion. It used to be the bond market was distorted. Now it seems everything is distorted. How should our viewers and listeners treat the economic debate to assist them with their jobs, their family, and their investment? Well, I think the economic debate is more than just jobs. I, I heard Jim Glassman about 30 minutes ago talk about the importance of jobs versus the importance of the uh, real economy itself, which is chugging along at uh, point uh, at 2% or a little bit less. And I, th I think, um, you know, that the real economy is the key. And, and what I've seen in the past three months is, yes, a, a strong surge in terms of consumer spending, real uh, PCE and nominal PCE, almost at a 7% rate. But it's been basically due to a drawdown in the savings rate from about 6.2 to 5.1. That can't continue. In other words, you know, right. consumers have basically been eating their seed corn and their nuts in, in, in the wintertime. So, um, you know, to my way of thinking, it's spending power, disposable income, which has only been growing at a 2.1% rate. And, and jobs help and higher wages help. But we haven't really seen a significant push in terms of the ability to spend money. It's been in terms of the drawdown of the savings rate. Right. This is critical here. Let's bring Dr. Glassenbrack in to assist Bill Gross uh, with this. I mean, the savings rate paradox is absolutely critical, Jim Glassman, yeah, isn't but, it? But keep in mind, uh, what one thing that's going on here is when oil prices came down, our energy outlays by the consumer sector plunged. Consumers are kind of slow on the draw there. So what's going on? The saving rate jumped up when that happened, and what's really going on is people are beginning to spend that windfall. So I don't worry about it as much. I really think the consumers okay. got the wind at their back. Jim, uh, and, and Bill Gross, I'm going to go back to when you look at the economy and you take out that consumer spending their seed corn, there's not much going on there. Some would say it's a dearth of investment. Alan Kruger of Princeton says it's a dearth of government spending. Which is it, Bill Gross? Well, I, th I think it's a dearth of investment spending, and you're right. Uh, the economy, absent consumer spending, is basically in a recession. That's not a, a significant statement. It's just barely uh, below the line. But nonetheless, in terms of investment, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of anything uh, that doesn't depend upon the consumer spending some money, which I, again, maintain is due to a drawdown in the savings rate and a low uh, rate of uh, disposable income going forward, you know, I, I think we have to worry about consumer spending versus investment. And investment certainly is lagging due to a number of structural things that we can talk about. Uh, Bill, um, I, I want to talk first of all about the portfolio. And folks, just to recap here, futures advance, yields higher. Bill, Bill, when I say yields higher, that makes you sad, right? Are you losing money with the unconstrained fund as we speak? No, only if uh, you have a, a, a significantly higher duration relative to your bogey. The unconstrained fund has a bogey of LIBOR and doesn't have a duration per se. So if interest rates go up, it's only an opportunity basically to invest 
going forward than to increase your duration. So it, it, I haven't seen the numbers, but I, I think right. uh, Janus Unconstrained is having a good day. Okay, well, we like that. It's very important what he said there about the maturity of where you are. Bill, for our regular investors who are going, I need a two-year piece, a three-year piece, a 10-year piece, where's the appropriate duration or maturity for mere mortals? Uh, uh, depends on your age and depends upon your risk proclivity and depends upon the... Uh, uh, obviously, the yield curve, and that's all mixed into one. I haven't given you an answer yet. I, I think at this point, uh, you know, the proper duration is uh, close to zero. I put out an investment outlook yeah. this week that basically said I don't like bonds. Um, I don't like stocks. And I, I think it's obvious that, you know, with $10 uh, trillion worth of uh, bonds uh, globally in a negative camp, uh, that common sense would tell you that bonds aren't attractive. You have to pay them. Bonds aren't an asset. Bonds are a liability at a negative interest rate. And so uh, why would someone want to own bonds right. only if he thought that they were going even more negative? And I, I think we're reaching that. Okay, Bill, I want to rip up the script here and drill down. Thanks to Scarlett Fu for a great <laughs> interview with Mr. Gross the other day. Bill, you made world headlines. You said get out of bonds. You're lukewarm on stocks and you want to buy intangibles. There was a day where you bought a Z-Grill Benjamin Franklin stamp for more money than God. You made some kind of trade to do it. Are you telling our audience we all need to be stamp collectors? Oh, no, uh, because most of the good ones are gone. Um, so, um, you know, they can't possibly find the good then ones. Then what's an intangible? I, I think what... Well, an intangible, it, it's something that's not financialized, that you can't really buy in significant numbers or significant uh, quantities on the New York Stock Exchange or in the bond markets. I, I think we're talking about real assets, meaning uh, property, land. We're talking about gold to some extent, although you can buy gold uh, in terms of ETFs. Um, but we're talking about uh, assets that have been left behind, so to speak, in terms of the drop in in nominal and real interest rates. I mentioned earlier the MetLife debacle and real jobs being lost at MetLife. Folks, the actuarial assumption, which is a, is a loaded phrase, is essentially a careful calculation of how much you need to make out a long time. Bill Gross, what's the actuarial assumption you would guess for the nation's pension funds, for our insurance company, Quiet Money? What's the actuarial assumption for my lousy 201K? <laughs> well, it's 7 to 8%. Uh, oh, come know, on, that high? Pick one up. That high? Well, that's... That's what the assumption is. Yes, that's what the actuary is basically saying. It's coming down slowly, but the state of California and CalPERS, you know, they're all around 7 or 7.5%. 7 and, and so what does that mean? <clears throat> it means that basically with bonds at uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4 in terms of the, the entire list of corporate bonds and government bonds, that stocks basically have to produce a, you know, a double-digit 13 14% return in order to get right. there. And unless they do, um, then uh, pension funds and, and mom and pop on, on Main Street, Tom, which is the important thing. Mom and pop on Main Street are looking forward to, in their 401ks, which you mentioned, to 7 or 8%. They don't know a number exactly, but that's what they're used to. And so well, when they don't get it, or if they don't get it, then they're in trouble. I want to pin you down this morning on this. Where do, you know, Zvi Bodhi at Boston University, one of our great financial theorists, has an actual assumption way, way down, Bill Gross. Where's your working number for our viewers and listeners. It's not 7 or 8%, is it? No, I, I think it has to be around 4%. What does that assume? It assumes mm -hmm. maybe 
5% for stocks. We've got dividends at 2 and uh, earnings growth perhaps at uh, 2 to 3% in this new world. We've got bonds in terms of corporate bonds and investment grade bonds around you know, 3%, 25 to 3%. And so you mix them together in a 50-50 type of mix, and it's a 4 to 5% number. It's not what we're used to. And what does that mean? It means that ultimately uh, uh, pensions have to adjust. They have to have more contributions or they have to reduce right. you know, benefit payments. And, and both of those are negative in terms of the financial structure and markets that we're seeing today and have seen for the past 30 years. I want to uh, break a rule here, Bill Gross. I want to, in the time that we've got left with you, and thanks for the ample time on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television with Mr. Gross, we have have to talk about our presidential derby. It has been front and center. Do you glean an economic policy from either candidate that will drag us further from this financial crisis? I don't see much, Tom. I see infrastructure spending. Uh, I think both sides can agree on that, the size of which is probably you know, up for debate in terms of whether the Republicans maintain significant control of the Congress. But um, aside from that, I don't see anything from uh, Clinton. I don't see anything from Trump in terms of, uh, you know, actual policies. I see tax cuts, perhaps. I see, you know, t taking care of student loans. But I don't see anything other than infrastructure spending. I think ultimately that's where most of the developed world is going. I saw that in Japan uh, in the last week when Abe came out with his uh, proposals right. and, and significantly, Tom, he talked about mm -hmm. giving away uh, $150 to 30 million people. That's helicopter money. And so if we begin to move in that direction, helicopter <clears throat> infrastructure, Keynesian uh, types of policies, then I think uh, that that's the where, we're, where we should go. I, I but I don't see it at the moment. Well, many of our listeners and viewers would suggest that Secretary Clinton is a Keynesian. Is Mr. Trump a Keynesian? Oh, I don't think Mr. Trump is uh, anything. I'm I, not to denigrate Mr. Trump, but uh, I don't think he's uh, advanced a, a specific policy of uh, either Keynesian, Keynesianism. He has talked about monetary policy. He suggests that uh, interest rates should go up. Uh, but other than that, I, I don't think he has a formative uh, type of policy that could be uh, put into legislation right. at the moment. Uh, when I look, Bill, at the moment we're in, and you've been so good about defining our financial repression, I've got service sector inflation at 3.2%, other measures down below. What are the ramifications if Chair Yellen gets her best outcome, first discussed by Olivier Blanchard, of an overshoot? We get an overshoot and we allow inflation to move on. Those of us of a certain vintage look back to the 60s and Walter Heller in ugly outcomes of an overshoot. Can there be a constructive inflation overshoot? Yeah, I think there can. And I, th I think that's been talked about lightly over the past few years. But there's been an undershoot, has there not, for a significant number of years. And the CPI, not in terms of the annual percentage rate, but the CPI itself, you know, is significantly undershooting, you know, the trend line of 2% going forward. And so, sure, there can be an overshoot. I think Fed governors and presidents have talked about that. I, I think we uh, could see it, uh, perhaps. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, let's... Let's forget about inflation for the moment because it's a deflationary world, and let's worry about, uh, as I say, uh, Keynesian fiscal policy, which might provide a push you know, going forward. I think monetary policy is basically um, uh, it's, it's certainly weak, and it's dying in terms of its impact. 
Bill, in the time that we've got left with you, I, I think it's so important to get a handle on the yield market. The two-year yield, uh, I was flabbergasted off the Fed meeting of a number of days ago from 0.76 down to 0.67. What does it signal to see the, the bond vigilantes, not Bill Gross, of course, but the bond vigilantes, what does it signal when they say price up, yield down, no uh, chair yelling, you're not going to get your way? What does that signal? Well, uh, it signals to some extent, uh, you know, structural changes in um, in monetary policies. I, I, I mean, the uh, the regulatory environment has uh, completely changed the money market uh, uh, field, as you know. Uh, lots of investors are moving from uh, uh, non-government to government-only types of money market funds, and that's changing LIBOR in terms of its uh, movement up and down. So there. There are changes from a regulatory standpoint, um, and, and to be fair, you know, the, you know, a lot of the decline is based upon expectations yeah. for what happened in the UK and what we're seeing globally. So it's it's a it's a global right. market, and and I think the vigilantes sort of go along to get along. Bill, finally, um, David Blanchflower of Dartmouth, who's been in great sympathy with much of what you have said, has published moments ago in the Guardian in England on the risk of central banks sleepwalking into another financial crisis. He says commodity prices are falling, crude oil tumbling, market confidence crashing, and central banks, well, they're just slow and just slowly getting to a more accommodative policy. Are our central banks sleepwalking? Well, I think they've been sleepwalking for a long time, and I'll, I'll take that back to Bernanke and back to Alan Greenspan. They've been following, and Greenspan admitted it, did he not, that he was following a wrong model. Um, I don't think Yellen has admitted it to this point, but she follows the uh, the Taylor rule. She follows the Phillips curve. She follows the unemployment rate. Um, she doesn't uh, see the destruction on the other side that we've talked about in terms of financial institutions that ultimately reduce growth as opposed to expand growth. It's all focused on asset prices. She looks yeah. at the stock market. Stock market goes up. You know, policy's fine. Otherwise, you know, she's missing the point that the market has changed. It's highly levered. It's uh, got a lot of debt. And ultimately, <clears throat> these negative oh. interest rates and low interest rates are job negative. What would happen, Bill Gross, if they raised rates? I mean, I guess there would be turmoil and, you know, your Monroe trader would heat up for an hour or two at Janus. But, Bill, seriously, what would happen if we began to normalize our curve? Well, it wouldn't be good. And it depends upon the pace. But I, I think more than... 25 basis points every year it is something that uh, needs to be done in order to renormalize faster than what they're doing. It, it's like going to the dentist, Tom. Uh, you know, you've got a toothache, you go to the dentist, you don't like the dentist, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't feel good, but ultimately the tooth feels better. And so, you know, it's a process of getting back closer to where we should right. be, not where we were, because real interest rates are lower now than they're um, have been for the past 30 or 40 right. years, and we'll both belong there. Bill, you've had a better-than-good year being unconstrained. It's a single-digit world, and you're developing alpha. What is the biggest constraint you face with the options you have of being unconstrained? What's the biggest challenge day-to-day? 
Well, the biggest challenge is that all assets are overvalued, in my opinion. Negative interest rates, uh, near 0% interest rates, lead to uh, higher than normal PE ratios and expectations for growth, which um, you know, ultimately are, are, are much too high. And so if you take the view that all assets are overvalued, it becomes a question of which ones are least overvalued. And so the unconstrained universe certainly you know, uh, comes in, 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 and, and you're uh, faced with limited choices in terms of risk and return. I, I've talked about capitalism and, and, and how does it you know, begin to erode. It begins to erode when, when investments offer too little return for too much risk. And so for the most part, any asset universe, any portfolio manager is faced with the problem yeah. of a significantly overvalued asset universe and, and which ones are least overvalued. Uh, Mr. Gross, thank you so much. More than generous with your time uh, this morning. Bill Gross is with Janus Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.